and welcome to Buy Positive. These are your hosts, Mari and MD. So we're sorry <laughs> that we've been away for such a long time. It must have been a very long hiatus. It was, and it, we didn't mean for it to be. No, it, it became longer than what we intended uh, in the first place. But you know, well, life got up. Yeah, life happened. Uh, we are very happy to say that we have a lot of work to do. We are very busy for our practice, other personal stuff uh, also. <laughs> got in the way, and uh, I mean, you've also started your PhD. And I started my PhD on an LGBTQ-related topic, so that's fun. Yeah, and all of that took, like, took us a little bit more time than what we expected. But we're back, and we're trying to um, be a bit more... Um, Consistent? Yeah, <laughs> to find a better schedule to uh, research and record regularly, yeah. um, to have a podcast like every other week. But we're very happy that there are people on Twitter who communicated with us and we still kept receiving emails from our listeners. It really means a lot to us and we'll definitely take your suggestions into account when we prepare our next episodes. And today we wanted to talk about a topic that is pretty close, at least to me, professionally. Um, I mean, to me too. To you as yeah. well. In different ways. Uh, we would like to talk about the the topic of LGBTQ refugees. Of course, maybe a focus on uh, bi-plus refugees. So, yeah, we thought about it because we both work with people who uh, are refugees. Because I don't know if once you're installed in the country and you built your life there, if you can still, if you, you kind of still are. Mm-hmm. I mean, being a refugee is, is part of your personal history. And so those are things that we have uh, encountered in our work. And so we had to research to work with our, our clients. And uh, we thought it might be a good idea to uh, do an episode. Yeah, this topic. Currently, of course, there is a lot of news about refugees and mass migration. There is a lot of false information about it. There is a lot of hysteria that has been built up in the media, specifically about uh, immigration and um, the influx of refugees from especially the Middle East. Mm-hmm. In Africa for France. Yeah. At the moment, when it comes to LGBTQ refugees, the most um, prominent countries that people come from are... Iran, Iraq, Jamaica, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Brazil. Going, leaving those countries to find a country that's more accepting. Yes. Because that's the thing. If we talk about LGBTQ refugees, it's people who are uh, living, at least for one, one of the reasons why they're mm-hmm. leaving the country, is that they're going to be persecuted for their sexual orientation or gender identity. So in 1994, for those who live in the U.S., U.S. immigration law recognized sexual persecution as grounds for seeking asylum. As of 2008... Uh, it was that only the United States, Switzerland, Norway, Iceland, and Denmark have enacted immigration equality, allowing for partner sponsorship. So if you are, say, an immigrant and you want to bring your partner over, your partner wants to bring you over, those countries would be the only ones that actually allowed for that route, which kind of sucks. At the moment, there is hardly any statistic about uh, specifically LGBTQ refugees to anywhere, pretty much. Uh, because when it comes to documentation, these things get really messy really fast. Uh, not just in the U.S., but also in the Netherlands. Among European countries, Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden, the U.K. have been the ones to have accepted the most refugees lately. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the EU. And as of the recording of this episode, yeah. the U.K. is still in the EU. Hi, guys. Might just for me for a few more days, but <laughs> it's... I mean, no one knows, really. So... It was really difficult to find any research on the subject because there are so many people who don't want this information to be found. Not just the refugees themselves who have to protect their privacy in order to protect their livelihoods, 
but also government agencies across Europe and across the world who aren't necessarily open and accountable with how refugees are being treated in their asylum centers. So I did manage to find a study from 2018, which talked about the integration experiences of LGBTQ refugees who fled from the Middle East, North Africa, and Central and South Asia to Austria and the Netherlands. So there were 19 refugees in Austria and 19 in the Netherlands. All of them came from Islamic countries. And what they found in those interviews is there were several identifiable themes in terms of how uh, LGBTQ refugees found themselves and what position they found themselves when they arrived in their country of destination, which is living a precarious livelihood, the complexity of having to be dependent on other people, still not feeling free, and something that the scholars summarized as, you're Muslim, we don't want you. Let's talk about this. I can't really speak for Austria, I can't really speak for Germany, I can't really speak for Sweden, because these are not the countries that we live in, and no. the things that we hear on the news aren't necessarily the things that we experience. Yeah, I mean, there was some news about... Austria, I think, recently. Yeah. Someone not deemed not gay enough to stay. Yes, I will get to that later. But yeah. But in, in the Netherlands, in my experience working for, with refugees, especially refugees from Muslim, majority Muslim countries, much like, actually, much like by plus people, they experience kind of this double stigma of being too gay for their home country and potentially being prosecuted for that, depending on what the legislation is. Mm -hmm. But also, being too Muslim, or just Muslim, when they arrive in their country of destination. And recently in the Netherlands and all across Europe, as you may have heard, Islamophobic moods have been on the rise. Prominent political figures such as Heert Wilders and Baudet, whatever his name is, yeah. the other guy, um, right-wing politicians tend to race hysteria when it comes to... Yeah, the guy who doesn't want migrants, the other guy who has a French name. Yes, the guy who has a French name and doesn't want immigrants in his country, but yeah. you know, he, he only wants the right shade of immigrants, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, yeah, these people have been racking up hysteria, talking about how, you know, people are, Muslim people are taking over Europe and etc, etc, etc. But at the same time, when you talk to people from Muslim communities, you start realizing that there is not so much an emphasis on their integration. So in the Netherlands, for example, in order to integrate, to become a citizen potentially, or even a permanent resident, you need to take a Inbruchings exam, which is a, yeah. a test uh, on the knowledge of the Dutch language and Dutch culture. When you, you know, the Dutch language one is relatively easy. At the moment, it's A2 level. But the questions in the cultural section of the test are very targeted mm -hmm. at a certain population, a Muslim population, the names that the test uses is usually Muhammad, Fatima, mm -hmm. Zara, you know, obviously more Arabic names. Mm -hmm. A lot of the questions are also formulated in a way that implies the backwardness of the societies that these people come from. So even though on the news, a lot of countries, especially Germany and the Netherlands, like to say that they're welcoming and tolerant and, you know, refugees are welcome, a lot of people have to jump through a lot of hoops in order to actually stay in the country. So, for example, in the Netherlands, if you're a refugee who arrives at the airport, the Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, you get taken to an asylum, um, a camp, essentially. Usually, those camps are located in the middle of nowhere, within two or three hours of a major city. 
usually what you get is an automatic no from the Dutch Immigration Services. And then you have to apply for an appeal. So you have to appeal the decision, the mandated um, term in which you're supposed to receive an answer is six months. But governments, especially the, the, the Dutch government, is known for exceeding that limit and not providing an explanation as to why that happens. Uh, most of the refugees who arrive in the Netherlands don't have their own lawyers, so they get assigned a lawyer. For and better or for worse. For better or for worse. And usually it's obviously, you know, it's pro bono work. And these lawyers aren't necessarily invested in... Uh, some of them are. Some of them are. But in my experience so far... Mm-hmm. I mean, you have like... A, there was one good experience. I had one good experience, yeah. yes. But that was after... Yeah, after appeal and appeal and after, appeal. After numerous appeals and after the person that I was working with actually changed lawyers. And then the second lawyer turned out to be a little bit better. So there's a lot of things. When a person arrives and asks for asylum, of course they need to prove that they are under threat. And usually the way that they have to prove it is by enduring a very invasive, very personal interview, usually numerous interviews, where they will corroborate the statements that you made before to make sure that you aren't lying down to like the very minute of when whatever threat that you were under happened and if there is any discrepancy in your story it's yeah you you may not be believed which is problematic from a psychological point of view of course when you are under stress when you are being persecuted and mm-hmm. you're running for your life you're not necessarily looking at a clock and yes. you're not necessarily going to remember all the details the same way. Especially if you also have post-traumatic symptoms. Exactly. Whether it's a full PTSD or other type of post-traumatic symptoms. If you diso- dissociate, just if you have you dissociated one thing happened, mm-hmm. or if you tend to dissociate, you might not be very coherent in what you, you were saying. And of course, it, those people make you talk about what happened in your own country, and it's a trauma. And you dissociate, you might not be able to give a very detailed accounts on what happened. Exactly. Or just like try not to, you might not want to think about it too much in general to avoid being triggered. It's very tricky. And the interviews, as I said, they're very personal, they're very invasive. Uh, people who come from, for example, uh, Muslim countries that stigmatize being gay don't necessarily have the vocabulary to express their homosexual, bisexual, transgender, whatever, their feelings. They don't necessarily have the vocabulary for that and they don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily able to express it because of that internalized shame. In the Netherlands, the mentality is that if you're gay, you're supposed to be able to say it outright and there's no problem with that. But in reality, there are so many people who struggle with even saying the word. There's just a problem of already having access to the concept. Yeah. You know that you feel differently. You know that you may be attracted to same gender. You also might also be having a victim of sexual violence linked to the sexual orientation. So how can you be able to formulate clearly how you feel about your sexual uh, orientation or your gender identity if it's something that you are still trying to figure, to figure out because you never had the tools to do it? Also, you were just fighting for your life, though. <laughs> Finding a label mm. is not exactly the priority Exactly. when you're trying to survive. Another issue is that a lot of the people who arrive in the Netherlands don't speak the language. Like, nobody outside of the Netherlands actually speaks Dutch. I mean, besides some people in the, um, the Dutch Caribbean, but that's pretty much it. Mm. So, of course, you're going to be given a, a translator in most cases. And a lot of the times, these translators, just like the lawyers, aren't that invested 
And in an interview that has to be super precise, any kind of incongruence, any kind of turn of phrase that is understood differently can be used against you. Yeah. So that's also pretty tricky. Because we have like refugee asylum, asylum seeker also, they don't speak Dutch and they don't necessarily speak English either. Yeah. Like, or just very uh, basic English. Mm-hmm. So these, they are really dependent on the translator to tell the story. And if the translator is, yeah, not that invested, not that good, mm. biased, whatever, not in a good day, mm-hmm. <laughs> that can happen. Because these interviews are also super long. It can take two, three, four hours to get the entire story down on paper. And by the time the interview ends, the person is exhausted. But the thing is, it doesn't stop there. Because once you are in the camp, once you are assigned a room, you don't necessarily know who you're going to be assigned with. And there were numerous reports. I believe um, it was a couple of years ago. I will link the story in the description of the episode. But in... Germany, I think, and in the there in Germany, the Lesbian and Gay Federation counted 106 cases of violence against homosexual and transgender refugees in the Berlin region alone from August through the end of January. So, four months, 106 mm-hmm. cases in just one area. Yeah, which is insane. And there's a variety of reasons why that happens. Not only are the camp workers and the police people and the translators and the lawyers not only are they in a position of power so they can pretty much be abusive to whoever they want it's also that violence comes from fellow refugees yeah and if you are for example a russian or a muslim lgbtq refugee and you are in the same room with the people who come from your country or from your culture who think that homosexuality is a sin Yeah. Chances are you will experience violence. Oh. The thing is they don't screen the people that they put in the same yeah. room. Or at least another experience of concealment. Exactly. Uh, which is a form of violence. I mean, yeah. of course not comparable, but yeah. So, and it it gets kind of ridiculous. There was a story a couple of months ago, I believe, about a transgender woman refugee who was uh in one of the in one of the camps in the Netherlands, and she was forced to room with cis men. And let's just say... We'll link all of that. Yeah, Yeah. and let's just say they weren't very friendly towards her. This is a huge problem when it comes to these these camps, is that people are put under high-pressure situations, and they are put with people who don't necessarily understand them, which is fine, but it's really difficult to find a common language when everyone is just kind of on edge and waiting to see whether they will be allowed into the country or expelled from it. Yeah, and it can take... It can take years. years. Yeah, years. It can take literal years. The thing is, another thing which goes specifically for LGBTQ refugees is that you actually have to prove you're gay, which is... um. How do you do that? I mean, you're gay, you're queer in general, but yeah. gay is... um. Preferable? Gay is preferable because then, you know, if you're a homosexual man and you come from a homophobic country, you will have the best odds, mm-hmm. I think, if you can mm-hmm. prove that you are a homosexual man, um, cis men. Which is based basically on stereotype. Yeah. So, for example, in Austria, there was a case of a young man being denied because he was deemed not gay enough. Because he was not friendly enough. And we all know that gay people are friendly. There, is, there was a bunch of cases where 
uh, people showed up to court with their own partners and they were refused based on the state based on the fact that just because you have a same-sex partner that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a homosexual which is baffling reasoning but it's amazing reasoning and any kind of discrepancy for example if you're a bisexual refugee yeah there is a mentality and this is something that i've experienced personally in my work you will be told that oh well you know it's fine because you can still be with someone of the opposite gender opposite sex um, in, uh, yeah, because of course we're in a very non-binary. Yeah, no, we're not talking about gender here. We're talking about sex. Yeah, so it's, it's really uh, yeah. Um, yeah, you can still be with someone of the opposite sex, which means that you're fine. Like nothing yeah. bad is going to happen. Basically, to you. you can pretend to be straight, so you're fine in your own country because you can you can fake it. Like, and of course, if if you end up um, having a straight passing relationship at that moment, it's very bad for your. For your file, for your case. Yeah. They're not going to believe you. So all of these things combined create an environment in which LGBTQ refugees suffer a lot from mental health complications um, and don't necessarily know where to go to because I don't know how it is in other countries, but in the Netherlands, you do get access to medical care. You do even get insurance. Uh, but that insurance doesn't necessarily cover a psychologist. And then if you go to a Dutch psychologist who doesn't speak your language or who isn't versed in your culture or mm -hmm. isn't versed in LGBTQ issues, then what do you do? Yeah. Well, you come to us. <laughs> yeah, that's how we end up, <laughs> that's how we end up talking about this. Um, but it, it is a real problem. And the thing is, at the moment, these camps, they're overflowing and the system is backlogged. Of course, you can also understand the government workers, the civil servants who are dealing with all of these cases. Um, but at the same, you know, you can understand that these people are trying their best. However, if you're understaffed, just hire more people. Yeah, I mean, not the, not the, the uh, civil servants who make the yeah, kind of decision. Yeah, of course. It's, much higher it's than the that. government that makes the decision. And so it creates kind of this really narrow funnel through which... Uh, immigrants of any kind are being allowed into the country, you know, drop by drop. Um, yeah. But they still have to jump through so, so many hoops. And, and the thing is, so in the Netherlands also, there's kind of this branding about the uh, accepting country. Tolerant country. To yeah, it's actually just tolerant. <laughs> but also, it's true, it's like, like the, 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 the marriage equality was achieved like over 15 years ago. It's the year 2000. Yeah, it's, it's 19 years ago now. Oh. It's um, so it's true that if you are uh, LGBTQ plus and uh, seeking asylum, it's not a bad choice. Yeah. Because it's true that in some areas, not everywhere, but in some areas of the country, you feel really safe. Yeah. Depending also on how visible you are, because it's easier to be uh, in a heteronormative um, relationship. And by that, I'm not meaning just for a, a apparently a, like a, apparently opposite gender relationship yeah. for um, um, a bi plus person, but also like just nuclear family, basically two parents, several, one or several kids. Yeah, that kind of thing. It's much easier. But anyway, so I think it's also this thing with the Netherlands where people are very hopeful about what they're going to find here. Yeah. And yeah, it's not exactly um, the paradise. 
I mean, I kind of like always draw this parallel to the American dream. Yeah. That the Netherlands has really good branding. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works. But most of the time it only works when you have the money to be here, when you are, well, I hate to say this, but when your skin is a, shirt, a certain shade. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideally, if you speak Dutch. And and I know two gender, two, two gender non-conforming. Yeah. Even if you're transgender, you have to be very uh, very much within the binary, in a way. Yeah, which we should probably do an episode about. Oh, yeah. Um, at one point. As, as we should do an episode about how gay culture, quote-unquote, is in the Netherlands and what's considered appropriate and inappropriate mm-hmm. here. But to summarize... But it does influence that asylum-seeking process. It does, absolutely. Because those are also the expectation of the, of the judges making... Those yeah. calls about like okay you are gay enough or queer enough to stay here yeah so it's basically very similar to i think we mentioned it before actually the system of if you want to get a medical transition or even hormones here in the netherlands there are certain binary criteria that you need to fit like if you're a trans woman you have to wear a skirt and if you're mm-hmm. a trans man then you have to have short hair um all these different things these are also the same stereotypes that judges and the IND, the uh, immigration service, depend on so. when they filter people. But that is, okay, I'm not saying it's excusable, I'm saying it's understandable that they do that because most of the people working in yeah. these facilities are cisgender, straight, white people. They don't have the education, but my question is, why don't they? And why, yeah, why doesn't they, don't they get some kind of training? Yeah. To understand that things are a little bit more complicated than what they think. Yeah. I say hire more doctors, hire more lawyers who are queer or people of color or come from the communities that you know you're going to be receiving refugees from. Because at least they, then they can be the middleman, the middle link between the Netherlands as this ideal mm-hmm. for the people who come here with that hope and, 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 and you know, for the culture of the person, which they were forced to abandon. And have a much better assessment of the actual situation of the person. Because maybe in the one very, like, very, very, very rare case, someone is going to fake it mm. to get asylum. But I think it never happens almost because there's so much stigma attached to it. If you come from a, if you come from a country where being queer can get you killed... Why would you fake it, knowing that if you don't get asylum, you'll be sent back to your country with that lab label? But even if you, even if you end up not getting sent back, what if you are roomed with people from that yeah. country? And and yeah, and, and also you have to live with with what is is would be culturally considered a stigma for you. Yeah. You know, so uh, family in your home country. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it seems very unlikely that someone would fake it. No, I think I read the study somewhere that it's like below 1% of yeah. cases and that, if, that actually and happens. And if that happens, having people working in, in the centers or with the judges who are from the culture be so much easier, or are queer or from the culture, who are closer to the uh, asylum seekers culturally, yeah, it would be very, not very easy to detect, but a lot more easier. Yeah. And then a lot more easy. I don't speak English correctly mm-hmm. tonight. I mean, I see it as yet one of those, like, you know, final dinosaurs roar thing that, like, the European countries, the Netherlands in particular, are becoming more and more multicultural as days go by. They're becoming more diverse, both in the racial and ethnic sense, in the religious sense, in every sense. But 
all of these crystallized institutions in the Dutch government are crystallized. They are still clinging to this idea that, oh my God, maybe one, of, one day all these people will go home and we'll be back to our... Yeah, we'll be just become... Uh, I mean, it's the same kind of um, fiction in France. It was always different background mm. and can't entirely compare, but this idea that, oh, those people, if they're going to stay, they're just going to become Dutch. Like, culturally, entirely Dutch, just to have a, with a different skin tone that we are going to ignore entirely. Yeah. So, um, and... Which, of course, is actually is that not necessarily a bad thing on paper because mm-hmm. you say, okay, we well, change country and you change the culture because uh, kids are going to grow up in this country, so of course they're going to embrace the culture and that's a completely natural process. But that's not how human beings work. Yeah, how many human beings needs um, to build a co- have a complex identity and they need to make sense of it and they need to understand that the culture they're coming from and the culture they are living in are not necessarily incompatible yeah absolutely but to I do mean, that you have to embrace to accept both a good example of that is actually i was thinking about what i mean they wouldn't be necessarily qualified as refugees but mm-hmm. internally displaced persons yeah. from the ukrainian east who came to the center to mm-hmm. to the capital there are a lot of lgbtq refugees who are coming from Eastern Ukraine to Kiev nowadays because yeah, pro-Russian regime is not exactly area is not exactly welcoming for um yeah you guessed it yeah um, okay. and so these are you know I theoretically speaking these people are coming from one culture and they're staying in this culture they're just moving like what four or five hundred kilometers to a different place but it's also just about finding that queer community to where you're moving and being able to to reconcile the good and the bad parts, good and bad, the negative and the positive parts of the culture that you come from with your LGBTQ identity mm-hmm. and try to kind of piece it together and figure out what that niche for you is. It's and it. the more conducive your environment is to that, the easier your life is going to be. But the thing is, I don't think the institutions, the government institutions anywhere are evolved to the point where they can facilitate that no. because you know even in those interviews that i mentioned before a psychologist isn't present which i think is criminal yeah i mean it's it's a it's when can when people can access psychological services it's really important yeah but they also i mean they can also work by themselves on that but mm-hmm. it's, it's more difficult but those services exist. That's what we do. And yeah. say that in all, every country, you can find um, queer-friendly psychologists who are going to help you through through the whole process. Mm. But yeah, I wanted to ask you: What do you think are the mental health challenges that those refugees or asylum seekers are LGBTQ plus refugees and asylum seekers are facing? Well, trauma for sure, um, mm. and not just trauma with a big T, like that one singular event that prompted you to move. Or mm. to, to run to a different country, but also all the other small traumas that they've accumulated throughout their lives, living in a homophobic or, or um, cishet society. And you're all living in a cishet yeah, society. I mean, but like more so. <laughs> um, but also, I think there is a secondary trauma after they go through this process because the truth of the matter is that, in my experience as a psychologist, the, the the system, the asylum system, traumatizes more people than it actually helps. Hmm. For example, I mean, I don't want to point any fingers, but the immigration camps in the U.S. 
<clears throat> yeah, but like we we are like touching something entirely yeah, different. But, again, but yeah, it's still. I mean, we know that there are an entire generation of children that is going to be fully traumatized, deeply traumatized, by what has been what has been happening in the U.S. Yeah, uh, with the Trump administration. Yeah, and it's not that here like just adults LGBTQ seekers, uh, as asylum seekers, but talking about families and kids. Yeah, kids who have as only ways of protecting their protecting themselves to cling to their parents in the sense of safety that they have with their parents and they are separated from those parents. Yeah. I mean, they're not supposed to anymore, I think. But yeah, let's face well, it, it's still happening. It's still happening. And that's that's my big issue with any kind of immigration system that on paper looks welcoming, uh, you know, the American dream, the Dutch yeah. dream, whatever. I mean, I think the, American, I think the U.S. aren't uh, considered welcoming at all anymore. Anymore, no, but the thing is, for the longest time, they had this reputation. Yeah. Just like for the longest time, European countries have had this yeah. reputation. And, and I'm not saying that they're aren't... actually still more welcoming in a way, which is. Yeah. This is a lot to say because we can't say that super welcoming. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing, you know, why is it that the people who have been running from persecution, who have been running from war, from famine, who look towards their destination as, you know, some sort of light at the end of the tunnel they arrive at the at the end of the tunnel and they realize that there's still more of the tunnel to yeah, go. there's another tunnel yeah it's, yeah. It, it's not the end of the tunnel it's like just the little you know this little um um light um light bulb like yeah, yeah light bubble like um you know when it's just like one little bit of light that comes from the roof oh, like um i don't know what it's called yeah anyways <laughs> so no, it's not, it's, is, a, it's not the end of the tunnel, it's this window, this um, roof window thingy. And sometimes the light in the end of the tunnel is just an oncoming train that's going to, you know, yeah. knock you off your feet and push you back to where you came Yeah, it's becoming really dark. No, but it's the truth. <laughs> no, it's and the truth, yeah. the thing is, as much as I want to say, you know, oh, but it's great and we can help everyone and fix no, it's everything, right. it's not going to happen. Because there are good people out there who are ready to help. There are good people who even work in these government institutions, but their hands are tied. And a lot of people, I really hate to say this, but a lot of people in the Netherlands, it's not that they're ignorant to these issues, it's just that they don't care. It's, it's just that they're not even see, they don't care as it, they don't even see them. Yeah. They're, they're just a tunnel vision, they don't see it at all. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest issues is that if you want your country to be welcoming, then be welcoming yourself. You know, be educated, read up on things, and volunteer at shelters, volunteer at, you know, communities that allow refugees to integrate better, mm. um, because they are eager to learn. Yeah, and, yeah, and to go back to my question yeah. <laughs> about the mental health challenges, yeah. you see, so I think there's definitely trauma. trauma yeah. Definitely trauma, for sure. Um, I mean, what I've seen, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, mm-hmm. um, the people that I have worked with, they come from countries who don't necessarily place a lot of em- emphasis on mental health. So a lot of the symptoms of anxiety mm-hmm. and depression and mm-hmm. trauma are somatized. Yeah. So there's a lot of back problems. There's a lot of intestinal problems. There's a lot of insomnia. All these things that, you know, under normal circumstances, we would consider physical issues but they do come from very yeah, psychological Clearly problems. very somatic. Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely say that. Um, but also just as an umbrella for, uh, not an umbrella, but like a, 
a more or less cause, I guess, for, for everything that I just mentioned is, of course, the experience of stigma on both sides yeah. of who they are, either being stigmatized as a queer person or being stigmatized as a refugee or an immigrant or Muslim or Eastern European or African or whatever, you know? Yeah. So I think a lot of people come with hopes and then they get their hearts broken and then they just kind of feel suspended in between yeah. with no personal space, no mental space to figure out what happened and no psychological help yeah. to get them through this so period. So also pretty easy to develop um, addiction issues. Yeah, addiction issues. Conditions. For gay men in particular, it's, you know, uh, unsafe sex, yeah. um, drugs, chemsex, mm. uh, too much partying. Yeah. Um, so these things do happen because a lot of people, this is the only way that they can kind of connect to their homosexuality is through these kind of very stereotypical negative behaviors yeah. of the homosexual community. To summarize, it's, it's even worse than being um, caught between a rock and a hard place. Mm. I'd say it's, it's, uh, it's um, being caught between a, a, a rock, a hard place, and a concrete roof. Yeah, basically. Because there's the trauma uh, from the, living in that in an unwelcoming country. Yeah. And that's a euphemism. Yeah. There's the trauma of also, on the one side, those traumatic events and also the trauma of even like arriving in a country that's uh, not as welcoming as they thought it would be. Yeah. There's, on the other hand, there's the, uh, the, I, like the, the, the racism or xenophobia they're going to be faced with. And uh, and uh, how to uh, how to cope with that, mm-hmm. and like the roof is a really this, in the end um, internalized. Uh, I was going going to say yeah bullshit mm. from both uh, both about their sexual orientation or gender identity on the one hand, on the other hand, um, the culture they're coming from. And yeah. as you said earlier, it's really about here finding a way. To integrate all of that by say, okay, I can be proud of my culture and some aspects of it, and understand that the stigmatization I had to deal with mm. is not rooted in anything. Yeah, that it's okay to be myself. I can be myself, and I can also be proud of some aspects of my culture. The thing is, this process, as we know, it takes years, even can if be- you are at home with the people who love you, but. Imagine not having that safe face and just being it's, in a room, in a bare room with people you don't know, knowing that you might not be able to contact your family for at least years, if not forever. And not knowing what your, you leaving the country had, what is on the them. effect on the family, exactly. yeah. especially not leaving the country for those reasons, it's, if it is um, in a way or another known yeah. locally. It's um, it's very complicated. You said it was. It's going. It might take years mm. to deal with decades. I was going to say it might take generations. Yeah. Because we know that in, ca- in those cases of migration-related mm. trauma, the second generation generally has to deal with the trauma. Yeah. Of the parents. Exactly. So I mean, we're not gonna get into epigenetics and stuff, but yeah, it is. It, it is what it is, and. Before you start judging immigrants for being who they are and for coming to the country, you know, as if they don't have enough space on their own, 
think about all the things that they have to go through and think about the sacrifices that they make to be to try to be happy and i think it also interrogates us because you have to make a choice when you come and make a choice well you have to reflect on it and find a solution which is super difficult when you come from a country or a culture that doesn't recognize your sexual orientation or gender identity mm. and of course we talked about muslim country but let's talk about poland Today, if you're Polish and LGBTQ+, basically you're not Polish. Yeah. Um, you're not Catholic, you're not Polish. You are, I am going to uh, be caricatural, but it's that. You are the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. You, are like a, you, you are a Satan, basically. Mm. You're the devil. Um, but you can still feel actually Polish and even Catholic attached to some aspect of it. Yeah, exactly. And, and believe in God and be a Christian. If not following an entire Catholic dogma, yeah. Um, so just reconciling that, reconciling that is not that easy. I mean, the difference is Polish people can immigrate to the Netherlands uh, simply because they are EU citizens. Yeah. So it's much easier <laughs> than to just have to arrive, basically. Yeah. Um, but uh, so it's it's difficult. But I think for us, it also makes us quite. It, it's interesting for us to accept, to question our identities. And to reflect on them, and to reflect on how we relate to those people, because yeah. we do have this one queer or LGBTQ plus identity in common. This experience of having a different sexual orientation mm-hmm. or gender identity. I mean, here we are bipolar, so we we uh, we uh, suppose that most of our listener as are at least have a different sexual orientation than straight, and m- many of them might also um, not be cisgender. And so we have those experiences, and we have this experience in common with, with the, the, them, the refugees. And, and so, and, and yet, if we're being very honest, who hasn't thought, oh God, mm. so many people who are going to accommodate them that can almost be reasonable, or have a racist bias? We all have them. And it's important to be aware of it. Yeah. And it's important to be aware of what we have in common. There's just people who are going through something very difficult. I mean, to, to underscore what you just said, we just, just, again, go back to the Netherlands and think about the fact that most anti-Muslim um, laws and anti-Muslim politicians, they were voted for by white, gay, Dutch men. Yeah. There's a huge, huge part of right-wing white, gay men in the Netherlands. Because according to the right-wing politicians, gay rights are an integral part of what it means to be Dutch. And if Muslim people come into the country, they're going to try to take that away because according to their religion, you can't be gay. And so this kind of hysteria, of course, immediately you know, starts to um, catch up with you. And if you, know, if you want to protect the kind of life that you're living, you're going to vote against these people coming. And that's... It's just the fact that people are being played on with their fears and uh, it's working. It would be more easier, much easier to actually um, uplift people who are trying to find ways of um, living their faith and being who they are. Yeah. And there are many people, no matter what the religion, because we talk a lot about Islam. And it's true there is some version of Islam out there or people who call themselves Muslim. Mm-hmm. Are they really Muslim? That's a, that's a debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who are uh, preaching a very intolerant version of Islam towards queer people, towards women, towards, and actually, to be honest, everyone. Mm. 
but there are people who preach a very similar version of any religion. Yeah, they're called fundamentalists. Yeah, and this and there are in every religion people who are trying to go back to what matters, which is their spirituality, their faith, and to into let people be who they are. Yeah, and there is in every religion. As an association here in the Netherlands, a good thing. Yeah, that helps uh, young um, Muslim queer people, queer yeah. Muslim people, to find a balance. Yeah, if there we have any uh, queer Muslim listeners, the association is called Maruf, and they do events, they do workshops, they, um, you know, they will help you with your experience of integrating your identity, your religion, and your culture. And initiatives like these should exist in more communities. And, and, and everywhere. Yeah. That's also one of the things is, what can I do to help other people? It's like, yeah, maybe take, participate in the things. Yeah. To, no matter what your faith is, you don't have to go, with, uh, to go for a particular faith in particular, especially, but also go to associations that help um, asylum seekers and uh, refugees. There's one in France. Um, that's called A R D H I S A R D H I S A R D I S, I guess. Who does that? It's an association for uh, the recognition of the uh, of uh, homosexual people, like for their rights, homosexual and trans people for their rights uh, of to immigrate and stay in uh, in France. It's a very bad translation. Also, also the acronym itself is a little bit. Uh, outdated as well because it uses homosexual and but whatever yeah it's a little bit um ignoring other sexualities and what was that. gender identity depends how you understand it but anyways uh, that's uh one of the associations that exists there are many things that are done out there in every country yeah and i think for people in the u.s right now it's it's a real real debate especially with everything that's happening around immigration especially for the u.s which prides itself as a country based on the idea of community be a community and mm-hmm. welcome people to your community bond around each other and create an environment where people can feel safe and listen to them and to their culture and how and it's not that hard actually yeah, and it's how? really not difficult to be friends with people from other cultures that you seemingly have nothing in common with because at the end of the day everyone's human and i know this sounds cliche but we're all human and our common language is empathy but it and it's also <laughs> yeah even if empathy is more or less easy to access, depending on your original culture, that's another story. Mm-hmm. But um, we do have at least one thing in common that you have to have a different sexual orientation or gender identity. And that is actually a great foundation to build something on, to build community on, as long as it's not rooted in just stigma and suffering and who has the most tragic backstory. But... To understand each other, to understand the struggles, but also, well, the perks mm-hmm. of being different and being able to think differently. Yeah. Um, so it's about that when we try to think about those um, people who are seeking asylum for uh, their sexual orientation or gender identity. So this was a longer episode than we anticipated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's important to talk about these topics, and I'm sure that not everyone's going to agree with us, but we're... We'd be happy to hear your feedback and we'd be happy to, also, to talk about it. I just want to clarify something. We, mm-hmm. It would be very hypocritical of us mm-hmm. to not understand people who are seeking to live in a safer environment. Because, I mean, you are 
living in another country. I'm an immigrant. You're an immigrant. You plan on staying here and becoming Dutch, so yeah. you are an immigrant. I'm a first-generation and my, immigrant. My grandparents were immigrants. Yeah. None of my grandparents were born in France. I'm, I live in the Netherlands a bit different. I'm a EU citizen, so I can live here freely. Uh, I'm in a bit of a different situation mm. for myself, but my grandparents did seek did seek asylum. It was I don't think it was that formal back then. Yeah. But um, and they um, they saved their life at least for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's something that I talk a lot with my friends about, and I mentioned it to you as well. That even if you're not a refugee, the fear when you are an immigrant that something can go wrong that you know at one point your time in the country that you chose for yourself will be cut short because someone calls the immigration services or you don't have the right papers at the right time or whatever else that fear is so real um people don't talk about it people don't like talking about it but it's there so be kind and be kind to your fellow immigrants if you are an immigrant Mm -hmm. because a lot of people see this as a competition. It really isn't. We're all headed for the same destination. So if you have any thoughts on what we talked about today, please do send us an email or send us a message on Twitter or just tweet at us. We will try to be back regularly every two weeks with a new episode. Tell us what you want to hear about. Yeah, it would be really cool if we could get any episode ideas from you as well because you are our listeners, you are our audience, and we'd love to know what it is that tickles your fancy and in the meantime please subscribe please share please uh give us a good review on itunes that would be really nice we will see you in two weeks bye